So let's go to God in prayer. Here we are, God. We're ready. We're ready to hear you. We're ready to feel you. We're ready to see you in this story. God, all we can do is kind of put ourselves at your mercy and ask that you open us up. We know that in asking that, it's, it's a, a little bit dangerous because what if our minds are changed or opinions altered? What if we're convicted and, and feel strongly? What if we feel a call that we can't resist? Oh, God, but that danger is irresistible. So open us, oh God. We're ready. And God, we pray for all of those people who are closed, for people who won't hear anything but their own, the drumming of their own opinion. We pray for people who are closed to hear the, hear the word of forgiveness, the word of hope, the word of acceptance, the word of, of justice. God, we pray for their closedness, that they would feel safe enough to open just a little for the light to stream in. So God, we come into the light, into your light, and we pray that it will illuminate our understanding today. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Okay, so the way we're gonna work it today, because we have like 97 chapters, actually only three, but it feels like 97. Uh, I'd like to give you just a little overview of this particular type of writing. Then we're going to do chapter 39. I'll read it and then we'll go through that with kind of all its quirks and crannies and story. And then we'll go through chapter 40 and then we'll do the same with that. And then chapter 41 and we'll do the same with that. So it'll be broken into three pieces, okay? Now, you may be getting to know me a little bit and know that I can get on a roll and never stop. So you need to stop me if you have a question if you have an observation, if you have something that you think it's really significant and important, it doesn't even have to be significant. I don't want to put that title on it because you'll never raise your hand. So something that, that you would like to share with everybody, then just raise your hand or throw a small wad of paper at me. <laughs> and I will try to look up and, and, and see where it came from and identify you. So anyway, so let's go. You see that in your notes, I, um, I, I put a, uh, a quote from Eugene Peterson. And this, I think this is a quote that really is all about this story. Though the wheels of providence move slowly, they move steadily. And in God's perfect time, they take us to some new realm of service where the Lord's divine purposes are fulfilled. If you ever needed a little snapshot of the story of Joseph, this is it. You see how God is moving in Joseph's life over a long period of time, and that, but God is steadily there. And so the providence is the word. If there's a word to sum up the story of Joseph, it'll be providence. That's what we're looking at. So the Joseph narrative really offers a very different kind of literature than we have been listening to about Abraham and Isaac so and Jacob. If you think about their writings, they're more of the old school, so to speak. 
And so all of their things are about their relationship to God and how God is, is an, uh, intrudes into their life and shapes it and everything is attributed to God. And it's all about their relationship to God and how they please God and how God doesn't please them and all of this kind of stuff. This is a very different kind of literature. So what we see here is the narrator does not express the passion of the Abraham narrative, like taking the son Isaac up to the mountain and God testing him to see if he's ready for this big journey. And that was a demand for radical trust by him. We don't see that, nor is the conflict so scandalous as it was with Jacob. Jacob stealing the birthright and doing all of this stuff, although we have our share of scandal. It's just not quite the intensity and not quite that primitive um, uh, Bedouin, that, that nomad sense of sitting around the campfire and telling the stories. Now, why is that? Well, what the scholars have concluded is that the intellectual world of this narrative is closer to what we find in 2 Samuel 9.20 when we're hearing about the story of David than it is to the more primitive stories. And, we, and while we can't you know, really pinpoint where this story came out of, the speculation by most scholars is that it came out of uh, a Sol Solomon's culture. Now Solomon, you know, built this incredible temple. He, he reigned during a time of prosperity and a time of, of intellectual uh, uh, prowess and all of this stuff, and he it was very metropolitan. And, and also the Salamic times imitated international ways, and it sharply critiqued the old ways of looking at religion. I was trying to think of how, what could be a, uh, I, I'm not sure that there is a uh, analogy to, to demonstrate that to you. The closest thing I could come up with was, I was part of the Jesus revolution. Now, for those of you who you know, know that, that was in the 70s, that was when I was in high school, and it was an excuse to be a good hippie. That's all I can say. Because we were, I was a goody two-shoes, a church going, carried my Bible under my arm, blah, 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 blah. But I wanted to be part of that, you know, radical scene too. So the Jesus revolution comes along. And the way we talked to each other, we talked in code. You know, it was everything was like one way to peace through the power of the cross. You know, that's how we, you know, that's how we talked to each other. We could identify with each other. We walked by with our little crop tops and our hip huggers and one way to peace through the power of the cross. And then we could, and we identified to, to each other. Now, nowadays, if you try to talk to a Gen X or a Gen Z or whatever, like one way to peace through the power of the cross, they would think, lame, you know. <laughs> That's lame. So that was kind of what was happening in this time. The narrative belongs to a generation of believers in a cultural climate where the old modes of faith were embarrassing. And it's kind of like us saying groovy and our kids go, you know? And so it was embarrassing to that generation and embarrassing to this more international type of, of, um, of Hebrew. That and the old idiom of faith had become unconvincing. So the narrative, this narrative, which is very unique because we're going to go right back into that primitive way of being with God in Exodus, but the narrative should be understood as a sophisticated 
literary response for a cultural theological crisis? And, and how does one speak about faith to a generation where the older ways are found less than attractive or less than wanting. And this is one of the basis that one of the issues of the Joseph narratives. So the theological claims of the narrator are subdued and they're mostly implicit. In, in other words, it doesn't say, and so God did this and God did that and Joseph said to God and God said to Joseph. It's more implied. You, we know that Joseph is a, a person of God and quite often there's that providence sentence that's just slammed in there and God made it happen. So, but there isn't this exchange and there isn't this uh, ongoing relational uh, experience that we've had with Abraham and Jacob. But there's no wrestling with angels. There's no staircase to heaven. But the narrative has identifiable and a singular intention. And what is that intention? It urges that no matter what happens in history, all the contingency of a history, the purposes of God, the purposes of God are at, are at work in hidden and mysterious ways. So that's what the purpose of this story is trying to convey, that whether you see God or not, God is there at work. Now, how can, don't, can't we relate to that, that we don't see these grand miracles. We don't see this, this exchange maybe that Abraham and Jacob had, but, but the mystery of God at work in our lives, we depend on that. That's part of our faith, that God is at work in, and is implicit in everything that we do. But nonetheless, the ways of God are reliable and will come to fruition. So this narrator is attentive mostly to the mysterious ways of God's providence, the way God works things out. So the purposes of God are not brought about by abrupt action or intrusions, but by the ways of the world which seem to be natural and continuous. So in other words, there, uh, there's something that happens, there's a consequence of that happening, and then there's something that happens after that. And so what Joseph, the story of Joseph tries to say is, and all along the way, God is a part of that picture, even though it feels very natural. So there is no, uh, and it's also interesting that you'll see there's no appeal for faith or a response on Joseph's part to God. There's no appeal that for him to have trust. There's no, that, there's none of that exchange. There sim simply seems to be a relationship that's already there. Because the main point is that the ways of God are at work regardless of human attitude or actions. Regardless of all that, regardless of what the brothers did, regardless of what Joseph does, regardless of what Potiphar does, all of that, God is still at work because God is moving God's dream forward. Now, do you remember what God's dream is? It's not Joseph's dream. Joseph's dream is a part of the larger dream. God's dream is that the world, for God so loved the world, that the world would know and be in relationship with God. That's God's dream. And God's dream is moved forward with each one of these stories and with each era of history. So in a climate with doubts about the reality or effectiveness of God, this story takes a very high view of God.
and so high that human action is almost declared irrelevant. We, we, we're not really interested in some of the things that, you know, where it looks like there's some kind of uh, um, sexual overtures. We're not going to stop and, and, and analyze that. The scriptures don't, don't even accuse it. It's just there, and then we move forward with it. So not only the brothers, but Joseph as well are unaware until the very end of the ways that God is keeping the dream moving. All right, so this unit of chapters 39 through 41 is distinguished from chapter 37 before it and chapter 42 after it. Why? Well, those these three chapters that we're going to look at today really talk nothing about Joseph's family before. We don't pick up with the brothers. We don't, we don't even have a flashback to Joseph being, there's only like a couple of things that are said here and there that remind us that Joseph has not forgotten, but there's, the story isn't there. The units know nothing of Joseph's family, his father Jacob, who we spent chapters on. These three chapters say nothing about Jacob or the brothers. The only focus of these chapters, the only focus on these chapters is on Joseph's rise in the Egyptian, Egyptian empire without reference to his Palestinian roots. So these chapters are another one of those hinge chapters that moves us from one location to another location and moves us from not only one location, but one story from this story to this story. And guess what Joseph is moving us from? The, the uh, establishing of a people, uh, a Hebrew people that become the nation of Israel. Guess what is preparing us for the next story? Guess what? It's the story of the Hebrew people in Egypt in Exodus. The book I think you should do. <laughs> anyway. It's so this is in preparation for that. So when you're if you just pick up Exodus and you've never read this, you're like, well, how did these people get here? And why are they so surprised that people are mean to them? And why don't they just go back to their own country and blah, blah, blah. Now, I mean, this is going to explain that to you what this is all about and that there's this big, long distance of history between Joseph's rise as an Egyptian leader and the, the next pharaoh in the Exodus. There's a, a long history of that. All right, so that's the only focus. So prospering in the empire, prospering in the empire is the theme of three continuous episodes in each of these chapters. The first chapter is with Potiphar's wife. That is prospering in the empire. The second is dreams in prison. And the third episode, and that's from, that's from chapter 40, the dreams in prison. And chapter 41, Pharaoh's dreams. And the interesting thing about these things, all, in all three, Joseph is confronted with a dangerous situation. In all three of those, in each of those chapters, we see Joseph confronted with a dangerous situation. And in each and every case, he succeeds. And guess why? Yeah, God is on his side. At least the scriptures tell us that. 
So this is what I'm talking about when I go back and say, this is all about providence. This is all about God being present in this. But he faces these three dangerous situations that he talks about in these three chapters. And in each and every one, he comes out on top of it. <coughs> and how he succeeds, how he succeeds is the thrust of each of these stories. So with the, if you question, why is this story in there? The story is in there for two reasons, because it presents a dangerous situation, a dangerous possibility, and it, it shows us uh, what happens when God is present with you. And it also talks about the thrust of each story is how God is in each story. That's the thrust of it. So Genesis 39 and 40 have a very clear theme. Multiple times we'll see, and I want you, every time you come across this phrase, and God was there, or God did that, I want you to go internally or out loud, aha, okay? I want you to do that, aha, so that you notice that that happens. Because it'll say multiple times, the Lord was with Joseph. Oh, yay! This is not, so, so we see in, in, in the first chapter, this is not a lesson about sexual temptation, though the passage does provide a very vivid picture of it, or how to behave in a bad situation, wrong, how he's wrongfully accused in prison. This is a lesson about divine providence. That's exactly right. So God works in our life in every situation. Can you grab hold of that? Can you testify to that? Or do you feel that your life has such broken edges to it that you don't see how God is in it? That's what these stories are for. These stories are to remind us that there is no brokenness so edgy and so broken that God will not be found in the midst of it. Am I saying that God caused those edges and that brokenness? Absolutely not. But I am saying that you will find God in that story. And you have to uh, have eyes to see and ears to hear. So God works in our life in every situation, even the ones we don't necessarily understand and even the ones we don't necessarily like. God is at work in those. So Joseph's misfortune, his betrayal, and his continued spiral into dangerous circumstances it provides a wonderful backdrop for God's glory and for Joseph's goodness. All right, Joseph was living for a greater purpose than the possessions he amassed or the status that he gained. He was living for a greater purpose than those things. He doesn't even know it yet, and the same may be true for you, But or the betrayals that followed him through life. He was, he was actually living for a greater purpose than that. But his circumstances points us to the God who is present and the God who never forgets just how precious and beloved each of the ones that God claims as his own, which is the world. All right, are you ready to do some reading? This is in chapter 39. Chapter 39, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, they made sure you knew exactly who he was, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, 
And he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Good. That the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made, he, meaning Potiphar, made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and with him there he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called out to the members of her household and said to them, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she kept his garment by, by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to insult me. But as soon as I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, This is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. Yeah, and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. This guy can do no wrong. This guy, now he doesn't know that going into all these circumstances. So I imagine he's, there's a lot of fear going on. But let's take a look at this chapter. So the chapter is divided into three parts, okay? Verses 1 through 6 describe a brand new situation for Joseph. And that situation is he sold from where he was in slavery into Potiphar's house. Potiphar really likes him and puts him in charge of everything. 
Joseph 7, uh, verses 7 through 20 reports the main action of seduction and escape. He got out of her clutches. Verses 21 through 23 describe Joseph's new situation at the end of the episode. And what is his new situation? He's in prison, but that's about it, because he's in charge of the whole prison and everything that's there. And it's interesting, don't you think, that they use the same language that they used to describe his uh, being in charge at um, uh, Potiphar's house. Potiphar did not worry about anything because Joseph was in charge. And then he goes into jail and says, the jailer did not worry about anything because Joseph was in charge. The theme of this story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife is a very common story in ancient literature. In fact, there is a close parallel to an ancient, a more ancient story than this in Egyptian folklore. And that story is called the story of two brothers. And it's an ancient Egyptian tale in which the wife of an elder brother tries to seduce the younger brother, accusing him of rape when he resists her advances. So why do they use this story? Such accounts, because such accounts are about the abuse of power. Do you remember we talked about that with Judah and Tamar, where on the, on the outside, Judah, the story of Judah and Tamar looks like it's a seedy, dark, sketchy story about some kind of sexual sin. But it's not. It's about an abuse of power. In that sense, it was Judah's abuse of power as being the one who had all the, um, had, he was the one who was in control of everything. And, and Tamar had no control over anything. So it's about an abuse of a power. And it's represented in, the case, in this case by a woman with higher status and the importance of integrity represented by a man with lower status. And I must say it's not lost on me that once again the woman is made out to be the bad guy, but I'm going to let that go. But I want you to notice something. There is a very modern take about our understanding of sexual harassment in this biblical story, abuse of power. We know that the basis of much sexual harassment and sexual predatory behavior, and the thing that will get you nailed about that is if you're in a higher status than the one, if you, if you, have, if you sit in a seat of power over the one that is the accuser or the one that you have been uh, you know, a predator with. It, it doesn't matter, it could be a pastor, it could be a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a doctor, it could be the foreman on a dock. If you're the person in charge and you, are, you have this relationship that's unhealthy, dysfunctional and um, whatever relationship with somebody that is not in charge, that's considered an abuse of power, and it's not good, and it can uh, and it can really lead to some uh, some great damage. So we have this abuse of power. So when it's employed in the Joseph narrative, this common theme emphasizes uh, Joseph's character and God's presence with him in the midst of it. And the story also lays the groundwork for us to see to anticipate the abuses of power that are described in the narratives of Israelite slavery in guess where? In Exodus. 
That's right. It's laying the groundwork for this because we've seen this. We see this, this whole theme of abuse of power laying the groundwork for what happens when those in charge treat you badly. So it's laying the groundwork for Exodus. So in verse 39.5, let's just run a, a, through a few of things that maybe in this chapter that you may have questioned. In verse 39.5, the theme that God's blessing of Israel's ancestors was mediated to those whom they came into contact. Did you get that? Did you pick that up? Where because he was in Potiphar's house, God blessed Potiphar's home and made Potiphar uh, rich and, and, and wealthy. And, and that's how it goes. Now, this is a very important and, and prominent literary style of the Yahwist writer. Remember I talked to you about the sources of Genesis, the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Priestly, the Deuteronomic, and do you remember that? So this is the Yahwist. So we know that the Yahwist is playing a major part in telling this story, at least in inserting this particular piece that says, and he was blessed, and he was blessed, and she was blessed, and they were blessed just because they came in contact with him. So then in verse 39.6, it says Joseph was handsome and good looking. And this is, you know, emphasized throughout scripture. We see this over and over again, especially Old Testament. But you don't see that so much in the New Testament. You don't see Mary Magdalene or you don't see the woman with the long hair washing Jesus' feet. They never describe them as beautiful and wonderful looking, you know, people. But in this they do. So why would that be? Perhaps beauty was a sign of being touched by God. So they, they make sure that you know that these were very beautiful people. Now, if you translate, if you look at the, um, the description of his mother, do you remember who Joseph's mother was? Rachel. If you look at the description of Rachel in 2917, it, it uses the exact same words to describe her. Exact same words. It says she was... And, and NRSV translate this as handsome and good looking. That's not the original translation. The original translation is beautiful and, and a glory to behold. So these two words are the exact same words used to um, identify Rachel, thus making the connection. And we are reminded that Joseph is not an Egyptian. We are reminded of that by that. So. Joseph, as a servant, is placed in a difficult uh, situation by his mistress, but he defends his actions as two things, loyalty to his master and to God. So what we have here is we have laid out for us the importance that the biblical writer has about keeping our vertical our vertical and horizontal relationships intact, that both are important. You can't love God and hate people, right? And there's no way you're loving people and hating God. If you're loving people, you're loving God. If you're loving God, you're loving people. So it is a reminder to us of who we are in relationship to one another. Potiphar's wife claims to have resisted um, Joseph's advances. And I want to say again, this is another example. I mean, my eyes just went, 
oh my goodness, nothing is new under the sun because this is another modern harassment uh, example. Um, I know that when you go through harassment training, uh, which we do, you know, pastors and church people, and maybe you have in your workplace as well, you have to, you know, the first thing you have to do is, did you set, tell them no? And if you never said no, if you were complicit and all that stuff, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. But if you said no, and you were very firm about it, then they're, they're in trouble and you're not. So what does it say? He, she claims that she resisted his advances and cried out loudly, right? Even though nobody was home. So, but she says she cried out loudly and why are they gonna believe her? Because she's the Egyptian wife of Potiphar. So this was part of the criterion that were used by uh, officials, but also spoken about in Deuteronomy 22 when you get there then you will see that this is talked about where it talks about crying out. You have to cry out and say no. All right, so that was part of that. So in prison, just as in the official's household, Joseph, he, you just can't keep this guy down. He rises to power because of God's presence with him. All right, so then we are through Potiphar. So let's go to, well, let me introduce 40 through 41 because they're a little bit hitched and then we'll read 40. So in chapters 40 um, through 41, this is the story of Joseph's rise to prominence in Egypt. This is when it starts taking off. And, and his attainment of a position of authority second only to Pharaoh. How did this happen? He was sold into slavery, thrown into jail, and now he's the vice president. It, it's, it's incredible. Joseph reaches such status, not through his own political prowess, not because he's very savvy about the way things work in Egypt. He, he gets there because of his ability to interpret dreams. His ability to interpret dreams. And it's an ability that's given to him by who? God. God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. Who knew back in, when he was 17 and had those dreams that his ability to interpret dreams was going to lead him to be vice president? Who knew? Dreams were, and dreams were widely regarded in Near Eastern um, literature as a means by which God communicated with human beings, either warning them, uh, uh, instructing them, or alerting them to something or, or, or something like that. So imagine, because that was the mindset, if you have a dream, God is talking to you. So imagine, go back to when he was 17 and he's telling his brothers, I had this dream where I'm in charge of everything. Of course they, you know, what he was saying was, God spoke to me and said to me, you're gonna all be bound down to me. So uh, then also two dreams that have the same theme are considered particularly reliable. So we'll see that in, in chapter 41. We'll see that affirm, affirming each other. So among the authors of Genesis, it is the Elohist, not the Yahwist, but the Elohist in particular, who always describes God as using the means of communication with Israel's ancestors and their neighbors through dreams. So we have these two inter, we, have, we can see 
these two uh, sources kind of coming in here. One is saying, if, if, God, if you're in a household, your whole household is going to be blessed. The other is saying, and God speaks to you only through dreams. And so they're coming together, and, and this wonderful story emerges. So then let's go to chapter 40. The dreams of two prisoners. Ready? Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he waited on them, and they continued for some time in custody. One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Do you notice how they keep saying the same thing over and over again? That is part of the literature of this, uh, of this era, where if you, the more you say it, the more it's true. That's what they're trying to say. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Oh, there's that old Joseph, that old 17-year-old Joseph who thought so much of himself. There he is, right here. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. And when it says lift up your head, what it means is they come into court. They can't look at the king. Everyone's head is bowed. And only when the king comes and lifts your head up, are you allowed to look at the king and the king addresses you. That's what it means by that. This is, okay, lifts your head and restores you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to make mention of me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this place. For in fact, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Oh, and hang you on a pole and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Wow. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his cupbearing, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But the chief baker he hanged, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. 
Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. That's chapter 40. So let's go back and look at that. All right, so it's important, it's interesting to understand that in Genesis, dreams always appear in pairs. Do you remember how many dreams Joseph had at the beginning? Two. He had two, one about the sheaves bowing and one about the stars. Those were his two dreams. So uh, it's a fact that appears to be understood by those who would be reading this as an affirmation of their reliability. So dreams are always in pairs. And then you'll find out in a few minutes when we read Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph's relationship with the cupbearer, because he was thrown in prison and because he was put in charge in prison, you know, this is like that old yin and yang story. Do you remember that? The one where, uh, uh, it's, it's like from a Buddhist tradition, but it, but somebody comes by and, and they have a son. He goes, oh, you have such a wonderful son. He's out in the fields helping you. Yeah, well, it's not so, it's not so good because, you know, they're coming by and they might take him to the army. Oh, that's so bad. So the next day the army comes. And the day before, the son falls off his horse and he breaks his leg. And so they go, oh, that's so sad. Your son broke his leg. Oh, that's so sad because the army came and then they did. So this goes on and on and on and on. And so you have to start redefining what's bad. So then Joseph goes and um, because he's put in prison he, and put in charge, he has this relationship with the cupbearer and the cupbearer becomes the eventual basis for Joseph's release from prison. It's because of this cupbearer. And Joseph attributes his ability to interpret dreams to who? To God. He says, because isn't God the interpreter of dreams? Isn't God the giver of dreams? So tell me your dream, and I'll tell you what it's all about. And the positions of cupbearer and baker were important roles in the court. Why? Why were those such important roles? Do you know? Right, that's exactly right, because poison was the number one cause of, of death among nobility assassin style. You know, they couldn't get close enough to throw a, a knife and they didn't have guns. And so what they would do is pay off somebody or sneak in something or the food seller or whatever. So poisoning was the number one way that you could kill off, you know, uh, somebody of high uh, nobility. So the cupbearer drank drink it first. So they went through cupbearers and the and they did. And the baker ate first. So they went through a few bakers as well. So these were really important. They had to be trusted completely because of this poisoning episode. So Joseph's reference to having been stolen from his land seems to suggest that according to Elohistic traditions, the Midianite traders found Joseph and rescued him, which kind of uh, uh, supports Reuben's claim. Do you remember Reuben was the one who, who put him in the pit and said, I'm gonna come next and, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll save him from the pit. But when he came, he was gone. And he's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So this kind of supports that claim. So when we look at this chapter, there are really four really important truths. Theological truths, I think, that really speak to us today. And what are those four truths? The first one is God is present when things aren't good. So that's an important piece to remember in this story. God is present when things aren't good. 
You look for God even when things aren't good and God is present. That's a, a piece of faith that we cling to. The second one is obedience doesn't always mean that you're uh, equal favor or flourishing. Just because you obey God doesn't mean your life is going to be smooth. It doesn't mean you won't have troubles. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. It doesn't mean any of that. It simply means you have the greatest thing that ever could ever happen to a human being is that you're in relationship with the, the one who created you. So it's important to remember, though, so that you're not always testing God. Why is this happening to me? I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm a good person. So instead of asking those questions, we begin to say, how are you with me in this moment? So the third thing is our service is valuable regardless of our circumstance. Wherever Joseph seems to find himself, he seems to be able to serve those around him. And isn't that true for us as well? Whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in, is there not something we can do to provide a, a kindness or love or support or something to the, the people around us? And, and I think that's always a very important. And then the fourth one that I think is the most mind-blowing thing of all is that God is always present. You know, one time, a long time ago, when I was going through a major life shift crisis, everything was falling apart. I mean, deep, deep stuff. I started having this dream. And in my dream, there was, I was sitting in the middle of darkness and there was these walls being built around me. And I kept yelling, God, God. And it just kept echoing back to me. And this went on for a few months and until this crisis began to kind of right itself. And I could feel the boat was stopping from, uh, you know, shaking like this. And I remember one night I had that dream again. And I'm like, God, God. And I heard water running. And I knew that God was nearby. It's a strange dream, I know. But I knew that God was nearby. And I said to God in this dark place, I said, God, why, why are you so far away from me? And God said, I didn't build the wall. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I never forgot it. It brings tears to my eyes just to even think about it. I didn't build the wall. So God is always present. All right, ready for chapter 41? After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And there came up out of the Nile seven sleek and fat cows, and they grazed in the reed grass. Then seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Then seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Pharaoh awoke, and it was a dream. In the morning, his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Let me just stop and say <clears throat> that the term and the office of magician 
in ancient literature is only found in conjunction to Pharaoh's court. So magician is somebody that can do all kinds of tricks and whatever. And you'll see him again in Exodus when Moses goes before him and does all of these things. And the magicians can do some of the things, but they can't do everything. So here we have the magicians. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Hey, I remember my faults today. Once Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own meaning. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each according to his dream. As he interpreted to us, so it turned out. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Aha, uh -huh. uh -huh. exactly. Thank you. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile and seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Then seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly and thin. Never had I seen such ugly ones in all the land of Egypt. The thin and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had done so, for they were still as ugly as before. Then I awoke, I fell asleep a second time, and I saw in my dream seven ears of corn, full and good, growing on one stalk, and seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouting after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. But when I told it to the magicians, there was no one who could explain it to me. How many dreams did he have? Two. Why did he have two? Exactly. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, as are the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come... Seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will no longer be known in the land because of the famine that will follow. For it will be very grievous, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. So he tells you that right there and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh, now he's going to give him advice. So now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. 
let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find anyone else like this? One in whom is the spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand. He arrayed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the chariot of his second in command. And they cried out in front of him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zavedath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, as his wife. Thus Joseph gained authority over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old. Okay. When he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt, during the seven plenteous years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of the seven years when there was plenty in the land of Egypt and stored up food in the cities. He stored up in every city the food from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up the grain in such abundance, like the sand of the sea, that he stopped measuring it, it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, Joseph had two sons, whom Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortune. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. And since the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine became severe throughout the whole world. So that's chapter 41. So what do we have to say about that? So having proved himself a reliable interpreter of dreams in prison, he distinguishes himself now by interpreting the dream of the king of Egypt, and then he's raised into this position. 
And you notice, I don't know if you notice this or not, I certainly do because it's not modern reading. You notice how they kept repeating the story over and over, like several times, he'd say, and then there were seven years of corn, and then later on it goes, and just as I said, there were seven years of corn. Well, the detailed repetition of previous events is a very common feature of the Near Eastern literature. And when you see that in every everything that you read. And um, uh, so, so we talked about magicians and lifting up the head. All right, so then we come to Pharaoh's dreams. It's very interesting because he dreams about the Nile. And if you look on the map that I gave you, that little map, it's not a detailed map or anything like that, but it shows you how important this river was in a desert. Look at how it runs throughout the whole land. So he's dreaming about Nile, which says it needs to, the, the Nile River is very important, and it's the site of his dream. And, it, and um, Egypt's agricultural economy has been one of the most stable in the Middle East. And it's due to the regular flow of all of the rains that are coming from uh, northeastern Africa. So having a famine was very uncommon. And so the very fact that Pharaoh and all of them believed Joseph that this was going to happen is very uh, quite monumental. So because of Joseph's wisdom and predictive skills, he's elevated. And the, the writers want you to be sure and understand how he's elevated. So they tell you that he has a, that he, he's given the king's seal, that his clothing is made of high linen, you know, Egyptian cotton, you know, a hundred, a thousand thread. And only nobility wore that. That he he they put a, a gold chain around his neck. It wasn't he wasn't a rapper. He was the nobility, you know. And the, and this uh, and all of that bore that out. And his new name, his new name Zav Zavanath Panea, means God speaks. He lives. So Joseph and Joseph marries a very powerful woman, who is the daughter of the most powerful religious leader in those times. So through the millennia, Egypt has played a very important part in, in the world, the breadbasket of that particular part of the world, and it continues to do so. Throughout the life of Joseph, God's great plan was unfolding. And Joseph's life picture for the reader is somebody who's willing to endure hardship, to rely on God, and to stay faithful regardless of poverty or prosperity. And God was faithful to Joseph. And yet, at the very end, we understand as he names, he names his, his children, and you can sense this sense of, of longing and maybe bitterness about his homeland, Manasseh and Ephraim. So we end that with a Hebrew longing for their home. <sighs> okay, we got through it. Yay! All right, thank you so much, and um, have fun in your groups. I hope that you have a great discussion. And let's just pray real quick. God, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your stories, the stories of your people, of people just like us in extraordinary moments. And we pray that you'll bless us with an enlightening of the mind and heart. Amen.